This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Lintamar, a philosophy ideator, trying to gain some idea of improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv python would love to be more than a philosophy garter snake. We have a special guest today. Cole, introduce yourself. I'm Cole Nasrallah. I'm a professor of philosophy, mostly critical thinking. Welcome, Cole. I had seen you on a YouTube thing. I know that you were okay showing your face and talking semi-extemporaneously in front of people. And so you were lured into (laughs) this web, which you were just telling us that you're incredibly nervous about. I'm very nervous about this. I could do like stand up, but improv is terrifying to me. (laughs) Well, Mark, what do I always say at this juncture? That we're always doing stand up. No, we've already been improvising. What is your stand up background then, Cole, that you think you can do it? Does that mean you've actually done it? You've been on a stage? I have done when I was younger. It wasn't great, but I can speak at great length uninterrupted, but I'm terrible at being a team player. So stand-up lends itself to these. It's essentially the same as teaching. And in teaching, it's not required that you be funny. If you're not, you've got to have the jokes. I would just use, when I was a, a TA, I would just use horrible examples. I would just use very negative, like a, a logic class. And it would be, you know, if Bill murders Dick, you know, it wasn't necessarily the approach that one would take in today's political climate, but it, it at least kept him awake. They get really upset because I like to use kicking puppies and such Mm. as an example. (laughs) There you go. Or logically force them to prove that I'm queen of the universe. It's nice. They like it. It keeps them awake. Education is 75% entertainment. If you can keep them engaged. I don't know if I ever asked you, Bill, have you stepped on a stage to do stand-up at any point in your entertaining career? Yes. Once or twice. Varying degrees of success. I never liked the classic stand-up persona and the kind of wandering around and the slightly uh, paranoid or depressed and they got the water bottle and the notepad and like that kind of persona never really jibed with me. But it is such the strong, it is like everyone's definition of what a standup is that it's hard to escape it. And when you try to do something different, even not even that different, well, that wasn't standup because he wasn't neurotic. <laughs> you know, he, you know, maybe I'll do some more one of these days, but as of now, precious little. So I could picture a more professorial stand-up that some of the people have have accused, uh, who's accused of being anti-trans all the time now. Dave Chappelle is like not even doing jokes anymore, that he's just giving lectures. I don't think that's quite true, but that's at least one extreme. Or you could just play a character. You could be Emo Phillips. You could be telling jokes, but with a character. Even that, I don't think, happens as much as it used to. I could be wrong. I'm not so up on the scene these days. But I, Nobody's I don't ever accused me of not being neurotic. So I, I think it works <laughs> out. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, Cole, I was asking you what we should talk about here philosophically. And though usually the rules of the show are we don't just say what the lesson is up front. 
when we have a philosophy guest who's bringing in something, we're definitely going to at least give it a name. That's too hard, particularly with this. So, Bill, I prepared you for this recently with our revisitation of idealism. Do you remember what that term means? Can you tell us right now? I think it was something along the lines of, I'm going to mess it up. It had something to do with naming objects and what is and what isn't, and that the idealist is the um, more of an idea, an object is an idea. Cole, fill that out a little bit. Just the basic Arclean, <laughs> what are, you know, idealism in general. He said object is an idea, which is what I was kind of like waiting for. How things exist. They exist as ideas, as things that we give existence to through perception. But the turn historically with this is there's the old fashioned associated with Bishop Barclay or even guys in way ancient Greece or, you know, the whole universe is just mind stuff. This is a very old idea. It's in Eastern philosophy, Indian and Chinese philosophy, both have versions of this. But the moderns, starting with Kant, sort of gave it a twist, which is you can't really know. The reason people started claiming things might be ideas in the first place, as I told you last time, Bill, is because you don't really know what stuff is. It seems like there's a divide between us knowers and the known and the things out there, our senses, right? We can only know the kind of data that our senses could feed in. So it seems like we could either never know anything. Ultimately, we could only know sort of the very limited amount of stuff that our senses could tell us, but who knows what the world is. Or maybe we can know stuff because it's actually our senses that are creating it. That at least solves the problem in a very cheating sort of way, right? Like, so it solves skepticism by saying, well, we're just making it all up. That's how we can know stuff. What I think is really important about idealism, well, first of all, I hate it. Um, I don't <laughs> like metaphysics, is that I don't know if you do you enjoy Instagram or online dating or any of those I'm sure things. some listeners enjoy those things. So please proceed. You're, you're looking at them. And if it's the same Instagram that I'm using or like the same Tinder that I used to use, you're not getting reality at all. Like there are innumerable filters and changes that are put on it just by virtue of it being on Instagram. So for all of reality, we're kind of looking at it through these filters. If reality exists, we're undoubtedly getting it through these sorts of filters. And we can't know what that picture actually is. Okay. That was a much more, sorry, Mark, but your take was a little more college kids, you know, smoking pot, sitting around the, the campfire. And I thought, Cole, that was like, okay, at what point should you meet someone on Tinder and you do go on some dates? When do you meet the real, at what point do you meet the real person? A real enough person that you can make a decision. Or I mean, even recognizing that like, that might be just a great angle, right? Or really good lighting. Yes. They're, they're, what, what is the truth of that? thing that it's representing. And in fact, I bet there are videos that are like, here's how you make your thing. <laughs> Great. This is the angle you need to use. Put this on your profile. Don't put that on your profile that are massaging the truth, adding filters, adding curtains to the rest of us to look through. Yeah. So we know that that's a picture of something that happened in some way, but how much of it is real? Well, as also Mark has talked about, you know, if I get hit with a rock in the face that did I get hit with a rock? You know, it hurts. And I know I know that it hurts. And that was always my pushback a little bit is that, well, I mean, that's it's not going to work in front of a judge. I don't know if you've seen those clips of these people trying to argue in front of the judge that, that they're sovereign citizens or whatnot. And if you've seen their, it's around the internet of people like, well, technically this doesn't apply to me because I'm a citizen of the planet. Great. You're going to jail, you know. Well, so you're getting at <laughs> something that we've talked about 
social fictions. And I think that's kind of getting at this division, the update of idealism that Immanuel Kant, so late, okay. late, updated, late 18th century, early 19th century, made this division between, well, there actually is some part of the world that's just out there and we probably can't know anything about it. But the idealists are right that there is at least some part of experience that we just made up. And that certainly includes stuff like who's a citizen of what, you know, straightforwardly social facts. But it also includes things like causality, right? The fact that whenever you see anything, there's got to be an explanation for that, right? Why is it there? What, how did it get there? Did somebody put it there? Why does it look like it looks? There's, there has to be some scientific explanation. And Kant said the reason that we know that like we could have known that just because somehow we've seen it repeatedly. And this is the story that people told before is we always, you know, when we see one thing bump into another, then the second one moves. We see that repeatedly we get the idea of causality. And Kant says, no, the idea of causality is way too basic for that. There's nothing that we could see that would make us even doubt it later. So this must be something that's just about the structure of the human mind. We're making it up. So it's a distinction between the world as it appears that we make up not individually, like maybe part of it's collective. Some of it has to do with our built-in psychology. Later philosophers thought there could be some parts of it that like, well, it depends on what society you belong to. That's, you know, we can get into that. But then there's still this area that's left over. So it's called transcendental idealism, that some part of it transcends any possible experience. So that's the distinction, which then immediately philosophers didn't like that distinction and tried to undermine it again. So this was all an introduction. Cole, you said you were reading a lot of Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer is like right after Kant, was a total Kantian, but had some wacky ideas about like what the world really is, apart from this sort of scientific thing that we construct with causality and all that. I don't know that I said I was reading a lot of Schopenhauer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making it more dramatic. <laughs> I've never heard the name till now. Oh, he's great. Honestly, I, I came to like Schopenhauer because uh, I don't like Hegel. So uh, that's a wonderful motivation for that. But yeah, he wanted to make the world more than just ideas. I wanted to say the world was more than just these ephemeral ideas that require us perceiving them to get their existence. Or God, if you're Barclay. And I don't know how I don't want to I don't want to step on the lesson that you're trying to teach. So I don't want to give away too much. It's just to introduce these concepts. And then see what we, we want to do with them for the remainder of the time. However, I feel like we've gotten enough out that Bill, <laughs> do you want to make us, this is the thing Cole maybe was apprehensive about, but he, we're doing it. <laughs> it's, it's part of the so format. It's just so mean because I want to teach. Like, I'm like, oh, but there's more we could just we're gonna, we're tell gonna, him. We're going to teach indirectly. Or maybe we won't. Yes. Mark very much likes embodying the philosophy lesson within a character. A character, a situation, whether we're getting at something that's actually something that rationally follows from the concept or something that irrationally follows from the concept just so we can show what it does not mean. That also is fine. Yes, he very much he has a big smile on his face. Mark certainly enjoys doing that. And that's perfectly fine. I will say that I then also try to bring in something improv related. Mark's improv has gotten to the point now where it's less do this, don't do that. And it's more experiment over here, if that makes sense. That's why we need guests to be fresh meat for your instruction, Bill. Here's what I would like to do. Like I said earlier, you've been improvising this entire time. You don't have to be ridiculous or crazy or weird. Our scenes are very slice of lifey, maybe with a little crazy little twist or turn involved. But your reaction to that twist or turn just has to be what you think a regular person's reaction would be. Does that make Not sense? Not like Schopenhauer. <laughs> it's getting you could be Schopenhauer. You could be however you want to do it. It's the least funny thing in the world. <laughs> well, we're going to treat you like that person. 
So if you play someone boring and we're rolling our eyes, well, then that's humorous. Hey, we invited you to a party and you're really boring. Does that make sense? <laughs> I feel like maybe I should just tell you, like, Schopenhauer, like, created pessimism. <laughs> Perfect. Well, the little lesson here, I'll go ahead and start this first scene, and I'll go ahead and do the lesson. And again, Mark and I have been on a journey here for 18 months, and I hate to just drop you right in mid-journey here, but you're going to get dropped in mid-journey. Well, then I told Ricky that if he keeps bringing ladies around, well, then we're going to start talking about it. You know, and he feels like, oh, he can just, you know, bring someone into the office and expect us to not gossip about. Of course, we're going to gossip about it. Nothing wrong with gossiping. It's fine. Well, I mean, it's just we're, we're humans. That's what happens, you know. So Ricky says, get this. He says, look, if you guys don't start respecting me and my choices, which, again, it makes zero sense to me. Maybe we're going to start working on weekends. I'm going to have everybody come in on weekends. How does that sound? And y'all can make your phone calls on the weekends, make your sales calls on the weekends. I mean, Ricky does have cancer, you know that, right? It's like stage three. I mean, you can gossip about him. There's nothing, again, nothing wrong with gossiping, but, it, you know, you might want to keep in mind Ricky's well, situation. About all the people he's bringing in, mostly ladies, sometimes dudes that just, I don't know what that's all about. That's what the gossip was about. He well, this cancer. is, I'm telling you what, what this is all about. This is uh, his last gasp at uh, trying to get love or whatever that he can fit into the, the narrow slice of life that he has left. I feel like the nurses have, or the ladies have been in nurses' uniforms. Okay. Have something to do with it? They, so you're saying they could be minders or health aides or work. Well, then they're turning over frequently. I guess it depends on your HMO, how, how that works. That's very possible. And now I feel terrible. And now we should all probably feel a little bit terrible. Do we tell everybody else? Does everyone I mean, else know? I mean, it's surprising that they're all sexy nurses. Like, I mean, that's, you're right. That is surprising. I would think that that would not be like an HMO standard thing. But maybe he has like a different kind of plan. We need to get on his plan. Have you looked into that? The sexy nurses? <laughs> well, just, uh, you know, I feel like my explanation of benefits form is not explicit about the attractiveness of the uh, the care personnel. You got to get the big handbook. Y'all, that's not that's not going to happen. That would have been barely acceptable in the 50s. All right. That's not, we can't, we're not going to put that in the handbook, how hot your home healthcare worker will be. Do you think it, do you really think it's nurses? Okay. Let's, let's put it together. So we got the nurses, we got the comfort animals. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'm, I thought that was more remarkable than all the women bringing in was, was the, just the sheer number of dogs, uh, cats. I think there was a ferret once. I mean, that seemed a, a very good HMO. I didn't see any of them. I, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm down in the warehouse, so I don't see everything, but if he's bringing in animals, do the animals come with the guests or is it a guest, a human guest, and then an animal guest? I think it varies. I think it depends on, I don't know, they're usually color coordinated. So I guess it, yeah, yeah, I guess it's usually at least one human minder per animal. But I thought sometimes that there might be something military involved because the uniforms are so kind of distinctive. Are the animals in uniforms? I've not seen the animals in any uniforms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was like, a, this is last Thursday. This was at three o'clock. I went to, to take my break and he was up there. There were three, so two female nurses, one male nurse. I assume, again, the male nurse was actually wearing the clothing traditionally associated with a with a female nurse. I mean, I'm not, that, that's that's fine. Sexy female nurse or just female? Nurse? I mean, I, sure. I would say, you think there are a lot of buttons, but like, you know, mostly they're not very buttoned. They're kind of down to the pull on, pull off. Yeah. Yeah. But with the military sash 
and with the the rifles and then rifles okay okay yeah, this, was, this, was that not he's bringing guns into the office i mean it's not him bringing guns it's the i assume it's just part of the hmo I'm more curious, was the, the ferret dressed to match? Did the ferret have guns? The ferret was a different day. No, the ferret did not have any guns. I mean, it had like a little like, uh, I don't know, maybe a little grenade, some some like little tchotchke thing that looked like it was pretty cute. I'd like to see a ferret in a beret. Yeah, but this particular day, this this last Thursday, it was a, it was a Great Dane and it had the kind of a, a square hat. You know, that's really skinny. I, I wasn't sure exactly what, but they were standing very straight. And he was giving them orders, you know, mostly sort of medical kind of orders. Uh, so not like sit. No, it was like, I didn't hear the whole plan. They kind of like looked at me and, and you know, strongly implied that I should get out of there. Roll over, fetch my chemo medication. I mean, is that? It was more like instructing them on their posture and like walking in unison, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just normal healthcare kind of stuff. Well, look, we're talking about all this now. Yeah, that's gossip. Well, if it gets back, we're going to have to work Saturdays. I mean, if that's what's going on at work, I don't mind working Saturdays. Really? Just to see what random sideshow accompanies Ricky into the office? I, w- I want to see what the ferret wears next. I feel like I've been missing out. I'm just giving my impressions. Like, it might not be anything military at all. It might not be anything medical at all. It's just, you know, this is from the little I was able to make out. I feel like it's our duty to spread things around. Gossip is not just okay. It's, it's obligatory. Personally, I think I think we just need to lay off. Something's going down. Clearly, something is happening. None of that behavior is is typical or normal. I doubt it's covered by the health insurance plan. And if he's going through something and he asked us explicitly to lay off, we should probably just lay off. So that's, you're, that's the new normal. So that's you're the not, new normal now. You're not going to gossip the new anymore. That's I'm not going to gossip anymore. That's the new normal. That was your lesson. You were going around. I heard what you were telling Cole about my nurses and i knew that you would be talking if you're going to talk about ricky's nurses behind his back you'd be talking about my nurses he doesn't even have cancer ha your nurses were cool yeah well yeah and like interesting and 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 not at all sexy i mean like very professional so i mean that's that can be sexy i feel like you said they were a little sexy i mean i'm aroused by many things but you know if diligently performing one's duties is sexy you know call me larry flint because that's that's fine. That's how the office should work. That's we're trying to promote a uh, a diligent sex positive environment, which means no gossiping, even if there are ferrets involved. That part was actually true. Anyway, well, just so you know, Mark, when your nurses were here, they did share some of your personal medical history with us. God damn. They broke my HIPAA. And scene. Can we can stop there. That's fine. Yes, that was a pun. <laughs> My little lesson here, and again, maybe we can chat about it as we go along, but that was a tricky one to get thrown into, Cole. You'll see why. It was a tricky one to just dive right in, but you did. You did. You dived right in. I, I hope my, my dovery was acceptable. <laughs> it certainly was. I could have used more doveries, but the doving that was doved was acceptable. Always leave them wanting more. You came up with sponges and, and scallops, and that's, that's what divers do. And I feel like it's good for the first scene where we have a new person to not necessarily put them on the spot and like (laughs) give them a character and ask them direct questions, like leave it to them. In that scene, Mark, you said, aha, I tricked you. Did that have anything to do with the philosophy lesson? It just seemed narratively. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It seemed more likely that I was making up a bunch of bullshit to teach you a lesson about gossiping than uh, to have to paint the rest of that canvas. Okay. 
I painted myself into a corner. Let's say that. I thought you might be trying to get to like way later Schopenhauer when he was like, ah, the only solution is to just not enjoy anything. (laughs) (laughs) Like the sexy nurses kind of help with that. Where like maybe we're abstaining from even like looking at the nurses or playing with the weird animals or any of that because he definitely thought the only way to be was without desire. It sounds kind of a Tao kind of a thing. Is it coming from the same place or a similar goal that when we do enjoy things, we open ourselves up to pain? Is that? It's that you never actually get to enjoy them. Okay. You're just constantly, he calls it restless, restless striving. Yeah, yeah. Always in the future, never in the moment of enjoyment. So the way to defeat that is, of course, to don't enjoy sex or food or anything. (laughs) Don't even want it. Even if it's in the moment, can we enjoy it? If it's happening now? You you might think that you're enjoying it, but it's fleeting. Fair enough. Is it not enjoyment? I don't think he would call that. (laughs) What did he? Was it beautiful souls? Super condescending. He said, there are people who think they're enjoying these things. Oh, those beautiful souls. (laughs) Look at them. (laughs) Thinking they're happy. Bless their hearts. Indeed. As an improv note, see what you think of this, Bill. I think, Cole, what you were saying is a great idea and that if somebody else is building a canvas like that, just jump in and add a layer. Just absolutely. And it's hard on the spot to think of a way (laughs) to, to, to express that, to say, oh, well, you know, desire always leads to suffering, you know, whatever. And I find that I don't have to necessarily find a subtle way of doing it. Just say it. Just have one of the characters have a goofy philosophy and like, that's fine. I don't okay, know. Yeah, I was, I was trying to get into like, oh no, I want to be here on the weekends. I want to get involved in that. <laughs> yes, yes. That, there we go. That was the too subtle, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> no, that, that was that was great. Do the philosophers make any distinction between? You mentioned like pleasure. You mentioned food and sex as two examples. Do they make any distinction between pleasures that are physical, visceral, animalistic versus pleasures that are cultural, or is it just it's all pleasure? Some of them do to Schopenhauer. I don't think so. To finish the story of just like, well, what is the world really? Is the world is a thrashing mass of unfocused will. It is desire itself, which is weird because like it's not desires that a a person has. It's just desire. A rock is like an instantiation of will, like to be rocky. Like, but to even give it that level of directedness is kind of inappropriate. The fact that it's held together as a rock, is a kind of will. Okay. Yeah, so that's maybe a way of explaining all the actual motions that anything has, right? Why does a rock hold together as a rock? Well, this is will. It's the will, obviously. And so when we have individual desires, we're sort of participating in the will. It's the will acting its way through us. Because otherwise, even just like my wanting to move my hand or something, like, well, where does that come from? Like, you could talk about the chemicals causing different things in my brain and stuff. But how does that result in the conscious, the wanting, the will? So this is his way of, well, the world of our experience, that's the one that science studies. And that's the one where you would actually look at neurons and muscles and how something in my brain causes something in my hand to move. But that's not the experience we have of willing. The experience must be, oh, we're somehow directly getting it from the world beyond experience. (laughs) This is as weirdly enough, Cole, is that Yeah, I like that. Well, and I feel like you're uniquely situated to understand that there are two different ways to tell a story, right? So there is that neurochemical way to tell a story, which Schopenhauer is going to be fine with. He studied medicine. 
before philosophy. He's going to be completely okay with that. But then there's also this like first person experiential way. And where does that hand movement come from? Right. So I think, yeah, that's a great way to explain that briefly. <laughs> I know there's, there's a distinction that we have, people have between an improv scene and a, and a written sketch. And it's not uncommon for people to feel like, oh, that improv scene was really funny. You should write it down and turn it into a sketch. And the reality is, is that the audience perceives it differently when you tell them it's an improv scene or it's a sketch. And if it's a sketch and it's not polished and perfect, well, you had an opportunity to fix it and you didn't. Whereas in an improv scene, the audience understands that they are witnessing the act of creation and that that has a value all its own. And they don't always get that, that you can't recapture that moment of creation. And even though if you write down the same words, same action from a really funny improv scene, it's going to get a different laugh when the audience is not believing that what they're seeing is being created for the first time. Is that in any way? <laughs> I'm getting blank stares, but I, it felt like it maybe was appropriate in my mind. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, think more instead about how the actors on stage are experiencing that exact same scene versus how the audience is experiencing that scene. That might be more useful. I don't know. I might be crazy. <laughs> That's also possible. There is the actor and then there's the character. And at times an actor might lose themselves in the character, you know, 95%, but they're always aware of the fact they're on stage. I'm not in my light. Someone's line is coming out differently. You know, all those things that the actor might pick up on that the character will be absolutely numb to, yet it's affecting the character. And certainly in improv, there are situations where me, the actor, is like, the scene is going on too long. We've talked that point to death. The actor is thinking that and then willing the character to also, you need to be bored because this is, you know, and like instructing the character how to behave in such a way that will forward the scene based on the actor's knowledge of, of how improv works. So the connecting tissue here that I'm seeing is I actually don't think that Schopenhauer's story about desire or will coming somehow from the world beyond experience makes any sense at all. Like, no, it's just a different, <laughs> it's a different aspect or layer or something within experience. We're not somehow breaking out of the web of causality or whatever. It's just a different way of analyzing things that you could give the scientific explanation or you could give the everyday explanation or, you know, folk psychology explanation for why you're doing something. And you're pointing out a similar thing that when, you know, you've got the actor and perhaps an actor's relation to a script. So it's like the script is causing the actor to emit some lines, but then you've also got the actor is aware of stuff that's going on stage, right? Even if you're doing a normal stage play, you're aware of like how much the audience is laughing. You're aware of what the actual, you know, the things that were unplanned. And so there's these two layers of my programming. Hopefully I've rehearsed enough that I know my lines. I don't have to like think about what my lines are or translate like I'm translating them from another language, like the script language. And, you know, cause then I might mess up. But I've so internalized that that I could actually just be there in the moment soaking up what's around me. So I see that at least as parallel to the physiological versus the mental story. That's charitable. I mean, could this will that exists inside rocks, could that be a manifestation of some physical forces that they were unaware of? And that there is potential energy, there is literally potential energy within the bonds holding that rock together. Can I go like absolutely crazy about this? Because I think... Please? <laughs> I mean, so I'm going to be very kind to Schopenhauer right now, but I think if we <laughs> understand the will and all of the world is will and representation, which is like his seminal work, as 
just really very early, very bad, like quantum mechanics, you can make sense of it. And like (laughs) the will is just instantiation itself or once, once you've stripped off all the filters. So idea are all the filters that we have when we're looking at that Instagram picture. And then the will is the thing itself. I think you can make a kind of sense out of it. (laughs) I don't know that it does everything he wants it to do, but yeah, you could certainly look at it as like some, I mean, he doesn't want it to be a physical phenomenon per se, but as a force, a unifying total force, like the, the existence force. You talk about the Instagram thing. Could the difference between what is presented and what is real be will? Will is going to be the thing without the filters. So it's like if you could have actually seen that moment where the picture was taken. Ah, okay. But the relationship between an individual act of either me willing my hand to move or a rock willing itself to be a rock, you know, if you want to use that term will in quotes, they're both supposed to be participating somehow in the universal will, which that word participating, does that sound familiar, Bill, from the history of philosophy, from Plato, perhaps? Do you remember this world? It's familiar, but I can't, I'm not going to, if it was a multiple choice test, I could I'd probably get it right. But uh, if it's an essay, I'm not going to. We probably talked about like triangles, like any triangle that you draw is an imperfect triangle. It's not actually a real triangle, right? Because the lines you just draw have width. It has depth on the page. They're not totally straight, etc. So it's like, well, it's related to an idea of a triangle. And Plato thought that actually what is most real in the universe are those ideals, the ideal triangle, the one that we actually draw, like, well, that's just a cheap little copy. And that's actually the same with everything that we actually experience. And so this is, at least I'm making, Cole, you can tell me if this is way off. So he's doing that with the idea of force that you asked, couldn't this be a physical force that we just don't know about? Yes, all physical forces that science studies are like instantiations or particularizations or something. They were somehow related to like this big, it's like the God will, the big will that's out there. The existence force. Yeah, absolutely. It could be. And again, we don't want to make it like purely physical in like a necessarily science way, but I, well, maybe Schopenhauer would want to <laughs> in a science way, whatever that means. But yeah, it, it's, uh, it's the coming into existence force. Maybe that kind of that creative force that you were talking about, that might be a good idea to attach to it because he's going to want to say that like us desiring is also willing. It's just not different to the rock holding together force willing as it were. They all grab from that same pool of will, which is just in everything that exists because it has to, otherwise it wouldn't exist. (laughs) And he thinks we should separate ourselves from that or we shouldn't let it be our boss. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the difference with that with Plato those eternal forms are awesome. Like that's why Christians glommed, a lot of them glommed onto Plato's. There's Platonic Christians in the Middle Ages because it's like, oh, it's the everything's, it's like there's a heavenly version of everything. But for Schopenhauer, this thing that we're all participating in is a bunch of chaotic bullshit. You don't want to be in that. You have to change some sort of balance with regard to it. You know, it's like the world is this big, terrible flux and it's just everything is crazy. And like, so what is the, what is the proper ethical reaction to that? Well, it's to kind of like have no desire, be an Eastern guru, be like... Yeah, achieve nirvana. Put it at a distance, be in harmony with it, but don't let it like take you. Don't be the man of great passions who is taking the will and taking it really seriously and killing yourself. This is why he's a pessimist, because like if you get stuck in that, if you actually try to do stuff, it's all going to just... None of it's going to be satisfying. It's all... 
Yeah. yeah, it's just restless striving and you're just going to do more of it. You're going to will for all these things. And when you get them, what do you have? You have more willing and you're just chasing the willing dragon. You don't want to chase it. I guess maybe you don't want to be fooled by it. And next thing you know, you're starting wars. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Or brothels. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we touched on Taoism last time, Bill, which is something that came up this kind of the Chinese version of the Buddhist no willing during the the warring states period. So there's like war all over the place. And it's explicitly a reaction of we as citizens and even as leaders, like, please just stop. Stop trying to conquer everybody else. <laughs> Curb your desires. Chill out. Okay. The world is a vampire. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Set to drain. Yeah. Okay. So we got some more fuel on the fire here. Can we do another scene? Hey, Cole, do you, think you want to start this next scene? No. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I can give you explicit instructions or I can give them to Mark via the via the chat function. I'm getting more comfortable. I'm not comfortable enough yet. <laughs> now, now, this might be something, Mark, we, we have done before. It may look somewhat familiar, but Mark and I are on our own little journey. And that is starting to get improv scenes that feel different from scene to scene to scene that don't feel like, oh, it's the exact same scene. Just sub out pastry shop for butcher shop. Or the way this shows up is Bill starts things in offices. I start things in anywhere that is not an office. <laughs> I've noticed warehouses are common. Um, you guys like warehouses a lot. <laughs> you know what? If we want to get philosophical about improv and my feelings, it's this whole notion of like, if I start a scene with, excuse me, sir, do you know how fast you are going? You know, because of our cultural programming, we're all assuming, well, this is with eight words. We have a cop. We have someone who is speeding, you know, just because of that. And it's really efficient. <laughs> it's an efficient use of my words. So I find myself gravitating towards these concepts and things that are like, man, I can get a lot done explanatorially. Can I get the context set by tapping into our common shared cultural knowledge? I have a setting in mind from lots of things you've seen on TV, which is, and I heard him talking about where the where the drop was going to be, but I, I didn't get all the information. And so I'm sorry, uh, you know, officers that, uh, you know, I hope you, you let my plea deal stand that at this point, I can't actually name any names. I actually didn't learn anybody's name and I don't know any of the locations of where the wrongdoings are going to take place, but I'm obviously very willing. Okay, we've arrested you. You were the only criminal left in the lair who wasn't able to leave. You're telling me you don't know anyone's name for any of the robberies that you were involved in. That's what you're saying. Any of the other co co robbers, that's what you're saying. Well, as Officer uh, uh, Sandusky can tell you there, I was there to provide information because of, you know, the last time when I was the last one in the lair and I was caught for that, but I still didn't know anybody's name. And this time I did go in with the express intention of gaining some information. But unfortunately, you know, I just had to stand in the corner and look mean. So I don't have anything. But the important part is you're willing. The important part is I was willing. I mean, yeah, yeah. Give him a break. He's willing. Well, that just, I mean, willing to eat a pizza doesn't, doesn't mean I'm going to. I mean, it's like we need that information. All right, we're, this, is a, this is a crime ring. They've been robbing banks and stores. This is, we're trying to get a break in the case here. And I appreciate your, I don't even want to call it effort. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Where does Will stop and effort pick up? So there's one guy, I just call him Hat Guy. But Hat Guy uh, was sort of like guarding that the Northwest door with me. And uh, Hat Guy was like, do you know about this this podcast where it's like these guys, they tell you about history stuff. And so so I, that's partly why I didn't hear what they were actually doing in the room, because 
I was trying to bond with Hat Guy by uh, listening to some uh, episodes of his podcast. And I hope that's okay. That's it's, it's an inroad. I can next time maybe I'll move on to uh, you know his other hobbies. Was it any good? It was a little hard for me to get into because I'm so ignorant of history. Who cares about the story? Come on. How tall was Hat Guy? Um, you know about. Historically speaking, probably about mid-size. What kind of hat was it? Was it a ball cap, a fedora, a trilby? What kind of hat? I don't really know names of stuff. I mean, it was like one of those skinny, kind of like Beetle Bailey sort of hats. It kind of goes on your head, yeah? Kind of like what a, a line cook would wear at a, at a diner, but made out of paper. But this one was... It was a fairly nice hat. It was not made out of paper. But I mean, it did look a little like, yeah, you're right, yeah. That is interesting. Mustache. What it was his build. Tall and skinny, short and round, somewhere in the middle. People have facial hair, but I don't know if it's real facial hair. Like I was wearing, as you know, my uh, like whole like Groucho kind of glasses with the nose and the stuff, because that was my disguise to be in there. And I wouldn't be surprised if everybody was uh, similarly garbed. Yeah, I mean, that, he, he put some effort in. He, I'm, he what? He put, he put some effort in. He, he had his, his beard and glasses wasn't a sanctioned police disguise i think officer shandusky there is my is my handler uh sir uh you know take her word for it she's i'm i'm on i'm on your side i'm on the team of catching the criminals not the team of of being the criminals i think we need to do a little bit i think the effort needs to bear some fruit okay i think you've got the participation ribbon i think what we really need is some actionable intelligence here how many people were there I'm not good with numbers. I mean, something on the order of, uh, you know, certainly less than less than 20 and more than one. I mean, okay. so what I was hearing was about mostly about World War Two. And there was like a lot of figures. Not in the the podcast. I don't care about the podcast. I'm talking about the the crime plan. It, It was hard to concentrate, you know, between what I was hearing and then like what I'm filling in in my perception, my field of perception. It was kind of really making me think about how we understand history and how that shapes, uh, you know, how we see ourselves. Just some valuable reflection. And isn't that important? Isn't that what's important is that I come out a better person for this and that like the whole, you know, quantum of uh, criminality in the world has lessened by that much. And I'm sure Hack Guy, as the one who uh, recommended it to me, was, you know, you never know if the other people are going to have the same reaction to, to media as you, but I... I imagine he uh, had some enlightenment, too, if he's listened to that much more of it. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll just tell that to the next, all the terrified patrons of the next bank that gets robbed. Maybe they should worry so much about all their money being lost. And uh, th- think about the, the Nazi podcasts. I think, I think that's what we're hearing. Yeah, like in World War II, people lost everything. Like there were, there some of them were even in, you've heard about these concentrated camps? Okay, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, all right? I'm aware of... I'm, I'm mostly ignorant of history. It was very new to me. Wow. You're, you're helping them break free from the chains of money. They just need to let it go. We are paid to not let this kind of thing go as police officers and informants. Money, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. I mean, maybe it is your attachments to the, what the man has told you to do that's a whole new back. I like money. I like going on vacation. I like having nice dinners. I like those things. And, 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 and until society comes up with some other way of procuring those things, I guess it's money. All right. Well, I can write down the name of the podcast. It's called History Pot Roast. Okay. No, no. We did it. Very fun. Scene. All right. It's over. That was very good. <laughs>
That was nice, Cole. I really enjoyed your choice to be your character choice. It was very funny. Good cop to the bad cop seems obvious. (laughs) But it was just very specifically enabling (laughs) the worst possible uh, informant ever. (laughs) Can I tell her your direction to me? Please. How I I failed it very completely. You did not fail it. You did not fail it. I'm wildly curious. It was start of the scene, mid-story. It looks like even though I was started in the middle of a of a sentence, there was no story <laughs> this character had to actually impart. <laughs> it's not like I'd already given you a bunch of information and then was a you know it's it was it was a story that that there is no story, an improbably low amount of information that this person captured. Often improv scenes might start with "Okay, folks, let's have a meeting," or they start. At the beginning of an interaction, and sometimes they can look very hacky or fakey or just not natural, or suddenly we're giving that person a tremendous amount of power as to where this story will go and what it's about. And I just wanted to demonstrate that maybe I shouldn't. What do you think? Did you enjoy it, Mark? Is this something cold? Is that Was there some utility in trying this? Utility for what? <laughs> <laughs> On second thought, I should have started at, it's now hour three of the interrogation, something like that, to really put it upon us that stuff has happened in the room and maybe you guys have to help me create that. I find these brain games of piecing together narratives and figuring out what to say. I never knew what to say as a kid. I have uh, things that I carry with me, moments of shame where somebody (laughs) said something snarky to me when I was 10 and I just didn't know what to say back. Do you still remember everything that you wished you had said? I don't know if it's that level of detail, but there's certainly particular notions, notions of shame. And I do remember the first time that I really tried to come back at somebody, which was they were making fun. This guy was making fun of my uh, I had a T-shirt. This is like junior high with a, I don't know, like sitting bowl or something. And uh, like, oh, nice shirt. They're all making fun of my shirt. And I was like, yeah, it, it's like your picture of your mom or so, you know, some version of that. <laughs> and they're like, oh, sure. really funny. Yeah. You know, so it was, but at least I tried. The effort was there. The synapses were starting to fire. And I feel like that is what doing philosophy and doing podcasting about anything is all been about is just like, how can you make the synapses fire when you want them to? Sure. I think if we could go back in time, and like really like stop time and like plan. All right, here's here's my comeback. Here's going to be great, you know, and come up with a really good comeback. It would fall flat. That's my theory. The person on the other end of that comeback just wouldn't get it. Huh? What? You're just like, does that make sense? Absolutely. Like you got to be like, I'm not dumb. You're dumb. That's about the wittiest retort that will actually land. My favorite thing in these moments is the completely authentic response that is accidentally just severe and eviscerating <laughs> when like, <laughs> and it's just a sincere candid like um, response or I value those the ones that are like unfiltered and uncensored and completely candid more than it, almost the ones you you want to take back but no like let it lay there we go look it, it all comes back together Mark it always all comes back. Well, yeah, my, my regrets about those moments are not that I didn't say something different, but that I was the person that I was, that I was not as I feel like I, I am more so now. I'm sure I can still be flummoxed very easily in actual social situations that I did <laughs> not engineer by inviting people on a podcast, but, uh, you know, that I feel like I'm much more likely to let things roll off and not be stunned by shame, by self-doubt or whatever was going on as a 10-year-old nerd 
that would make me unable to authentically respond in whatever way, even if it was not, man, what is it about your childhood that made you just say that to me? That's the kind of thing that I wish I had had the... You're your own worst enemy. The perspective to say at the time, even though that would definitely have gotten me, you know, beat in the head. Probably for the best sense. (laughs) Your mom is about the best retort you could hope for. So can we pretend that this is, in fact, Schopenhauer's response is the certainly that related to the Taoist response is that rigidity in thinking is the is the enemy. And actually, this is even common to even the Confucian, who has all these rules says, well, you should just internalize the rules so much that you're not actually thinking about them. And so you're responding authentically with the socially positive emotions. It's just Taoism is a little more like, don't tell me which are the socially positive emotions. Like (laughs) we all have natural things that move within us. Let's get in touch with our surroundings and, you know, be authentic and not worry about, you know, whether what I just said was the right thing rather than the authentic thing. I would be very happy for Schopenhauer if he was <laughs> into authenticity. And yeah, that's, I, let's imagine, we must imagine Schopenhauer as into authenticity. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Again, if you think what is being authentic would be really getting in touch with the world as it really is, which is a chaotic mass of, of strife then uh, no, you should maybe don't be authentic in that way. We have to at least choose among our potential natural paths and cut off all those things that, uh, you know, would be too perturbing. Which is all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Social media, mostly social media. Yeah. (laughs) Have we covered all of that you wanted to say about Schopenhauer's idealism? I'm not sure. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) We've said all that can be said about Schopenhauer's idealism. Given our current constraints, maybe all they should be said uh, is a better way to parse uh, that. Bill, any any reflections on either more that you wanted to say about the improv or what you have just gotten out of that? In the spirit of Schopenhauer, none. It just washed over me. All right. Well, and I was unaffected by it. <laughs> he would be happy with that. There we go. <laughs> so I did. I did learn something. And uh, I want to authentically <laughs> express uh, gratitude to, to Cole for showing up and to uh, Bill for doing this with me week after week after week forever. It's fun stuff. It's always fun stuff. And it's great meeting new people. Thank you guys for having me, even though I was nervous and terrified and all of that jazz. I did genuinely enjoy this. Great. Now, do you feel in a position as our last thing to be the judge between the philosophy lesson that we, ca- that we had here and the improv lesson? of just reiterate the improv lesson bill i know it was starting in the middle of the story but that's not the lesson that's the well, technique the, the lesson is is that we we can free ourselves from this idea that stories start with once upon a time or that stories start with the quote-unquote beginning and the idea is that these characters lives they had lives before the scene engaged and they have all have lives after the scene engaged and that we can find more creativity we can find more co-idea generation by not thinking so linearly cause causality ish huh there's a beginning to these scenes no there's not a beginning there's no was it prime mover first mover that's come across my transom at some point they have always existed and we're just going to see a slice of them all right so between those two lessons the philosophy versus improv cole what is your vote who's which lesson is the winner today i'm an academic philosopher (laughs) this isn't fair at all however i feel like for Schopenhauer, like losing is kind of winning. So I'm going to give it to the improv. There we go. There you go. All right. <laughs> Check for the improv. I sure learned a lot from you folks today. I learned a ton from, from you two. 
and scene podcast. <laughs> Is that how we end now? All right. For more philosophy versus improv, see philosophyimprov.com. If you want to experience this podcast just like we experienced it, I make the unedited video version available via patreon.com slash philosophyimprov. Using Patreon's audio feed or the audio feed through a paid Apple podcast subscription will save you from hearing ads and help ensure that this show keeps getting made. Feel free to reach out to me at mark at philosophyimprov.com to suggest guests or share your thoughts about the show. Finally, we'd love if you would leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Thanks so much for listening. Baby, I